This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Terry Reinke. Terry Reinke is a German member of the European Parliament and Vice President of the Green Group. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Terry. Pleasure to be here. Uh, there's so much we, can, we could talk about, but we haven't got time to talk about everything. So I suggest we, if we can, just talk about three pretty big things. One is EUK relations after Brexit. Secondly, uh, the Green Movement and the success of the Greens, especially in your country, Germany. And then this recently launched a conference on the future of Europe and what you think that whole process will, will deliver in the months ahead. So let's start uh, with the UK relations um, post-Brexit. Uh, I see you found this something called the EU-UK Friendship Group. What made you decide to, to, to create such a grouping inside the European Parliament? Well, you see, when it was clear that Brexit was finally happening, um, one thing was also clear about it is that we would lose our colleagues from the UK, which I think had been really bridge builders over the past years between what was happening in the UK, the debates that were going on, but also maybe kind of leveling out a little bit the sometimes I would even call them hostile positionings that happened. Um, and I felt that if we lose that, we also lose a lot of this um, exchange that is happening. And I wanted to prevent that from happening. Um, and this is why I initiated this EU-UK friendship group. And we are really cross-party and from all different member states. And we have already organized a number of different activities, um, for example, talking about citizens' rights, but then also talking about the Erasmus program and some other issues, because we don't want Brexit to mean that the people in the EU and the people in the UK are turning their backs towards each other, but rather to try to still engage and build as close relations as possible. Well, of all the, the MEPs I've been watching since the Brexit saga unfolded, uh, you, and I mean this in a, in a positive way, not a critical way, you've been one of the most emotional MEPs. You're not, you're not afraid to, to show your emotions about the, what's clearly the great sadness you personally feel on the departure of the UK from the EU. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely, because I think, you know, obviously politics has to be about facts and policy and issues that, uh, you know, how, how we can solve political problems. But I think that this feeling of being sad um, uh, that the UK is leaving the European Union, this was something that also needed a place. And this is, for example, um, why I suggested that for the vote on the withdrawal agreement afterwards, we sang together as MEPs in the European Parliament for last time with our British colleagues, um, Auld Lang Syne, to have a kind of saying goodbye moment, because I think things like this are needed because human beings don't only function on, you know, uh, very rational things, but they also function on emotions. And this is uh, why I felt it, it was necessary to do that. Well, as you know, in, in the UK, at least, there's very much now a, a debate about uh, the finality of Brexit. The transition period has come to an end, as you know, at the end of last year. And we keep being told in, in the UK that we, 
everybody should move, move on, whether you voted for or against uh, departure of the UK from the EU. Uh, and somehow we should just make the, the best of a bad job and, and not talk about it quite so much. What is your feeling, though? Is there, is there, are there still grounds for an ongoing discussion as, as if the UK still has friends inside the European Union? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, um, because I think, as I said, we should not turn our backs towards each other. There are still so many partnerships to be built, um, so many exchange to be made, and all of this should continue also now after Brexit. But I think secondly, also, I mean, we discussed about the trade and cooperation agreement for the future relations. Um, it is better than no deal. And this is also why I voted in favor. But I think when you look at it, there are a lot of issues that will come up in the future, because there are a lot of questions that have not been finally answered, but that will need review and that will need further discussion, that will need also maybe some uh, more heated debates in the future. Um, so I think it is very important that um, we, we just realize that Brexit is not done. Brexit is going to be an issue that will keep being inside of the debates between the EU and the UK. Um, and this is why I think it's also important that we sort of keep these um, these ties and, and these conversation arenas and, and platforms so that we can have these uh, debates with each other. Well, as you know, as you say, there's a, a lot of unfinished business in effect, but there's also the question of the atmosphere, right? And at the, for the moment, certainly in the UK, there's a very strong feeling that there's a lot of tension out there between the UK and the EU, and therefore any kind of fruitful discussion on whatever topic is obviously affected negatively by this rather hostile relationship atmosphere that seems to be, for the moment, uh, a reality. Do you, do you think that, first of all, do you agree with that analysis? And secondly, do, do you think it's going to be a, a, a long-living phenomenon, this uh, hostile relationship? Atmosphere. Well, first of all, I mean, you know, one of the things that I was really shocked about is how quickly, and I must say, especially in the UK media, I haven't seen this so much, for example, in German media, uh, how quickly war rhetorics came back. You know, there was talk about surrender and we send in our ships and, you know, like a lot of headlines that really scared me because in a way I felt, you know what, even if the UK is leaving now, we are still going to be neighbors and we will still have to work together in the future. And we are not, you know, hostile enemies that are standing on a battlefield. And um, so this was something that, um, that I believe we need to turn around and we need to try to bring a different sort of communication, a different sort of tone into this debate. Um, and I think that this is actually why probably more exchange will be needed, because when there is this kind of hostile atmosphere, there is also a lot of grounds for misunderstandings or getting things in a maybe not differentiated way as it is. Um, and this is why we have been trying with the friendship group, but also with uh, with my former colleagues from the UK uh, in general to to build these kind of places where people can talk and understand where they can still meet each other. Because otherwise, um, I think it will have very negative consequences for both the UK and the European Union if this sort of hostile environment continues. Well, obviously, your EU-UK friendship group is a, is a very informal group. Thing, right? It has no official status, uh, like many groups inside the European Parliament. And nothing wrong with that. But as you know, also, the, uh, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement also lays down the, this parliamentary partnership assembly. Uh, what, do you think, what role does this assembly do you think could potentially play in terms of nurturing good relations in the future? Or is it just going to be a talking shop? 
<laughs> well, I hope not, because I think it will be very much needed that the oversight and the monitoring of this agreement um, will also be done by parliamentarians, because as we see it now, the way this the governments of the agreement has been foreseen, it is very executive in the sense that, you know, from, from the European side, it's really the Commission, and from the UK side, it's really the UK government that is playing the, the major roles there. And here uh, on, on the EU side, we have really tried to uh, give the European Parliament and also civil society organizations a stronger role in this because for the monitoring of this agreement it will be important to have a variety of voices um, who can give input into the negotiations into the discussions because as I said I think this agreement will not be the final point mm -hmm. of where we will be in a couple of years it is just for the moment, probably the best that we could negotiate. But there are a lot of things that are missing from this agreement. There are a lot of things that I think in practice are going to be difficult to actually be done. Um, and for that, we will need these kind of places, like, for example, the Parliamentary Assembly, to discuss and hopefully make constructive proposals how we can overcome potential difficulties. So in other words, this unfinished business we keep talking about will not just be the preserve of, of civil servants on both sides. It's very important you're saying that there be a strong uh, parliamentary polit political input into the process. Absolutely, because the citizens should have the right also to, you know, vote for the people who they want to be represented in, in these bodies then. And obviously on the UK side, um, this would then be parliamentarians um, from, from UK parliaments. And on, on the EU side, it would be uh, us as MEPs. Um, and for us to, to you know, keep the conversation going. And then, as I said, also find solutions to potential problems. Right. Well, let's now move on to, to green politics. Your party, certainly in Germany, is, has some quite astonishing success in the recent months. And you have a newly appointed leader, Annalena Baerbock. Uh, and, and a lot of the commentary and the opinion polls are very po are positive about her, about her and about your party. Is there an issue, though, in, in a kind of paradoxical way that the, the Green Party is a kind of victim of its own success in the sense that other other more traditional parties, should we call them, not just in Germany, but elsewhere, are kind of stealing your, your green policies? Well, I would still say that we are the original and that we have the, you know, most thorough and um, uh, sustainable proposals uh, in the field, for example, of climate or mobility. Um, but I mean, honestly, to me, this is a, a sign of success because actually in order to get this done, in order to tackle climate change, for example, we will need everyone. It is such, such a massive challenge that is ahead of us here. So I'm really happy about the other parties finally waking up, uh, realizing that we have to do more. And I can tell you that even with that, I think it's going to be um, still... Um, difficult to actually get policies in place. And I'm not only talking about Germany, I'm talking about a European and even a global scale question here um, that can still keep the, the you know, rising of, of the temperature below 1.5 degrees. And that should be our aim. So I think there is a lot to do. Um, apparently, a lot of people trust us as Greens um, to do that. But also if other parties are, are you know, getting on and, and starting to work on this, I'm happy about that. Well, obviously, the, the Green Party, again, especially in Germany, is a, has always been historically the political uh, representation, if you like, of the green movement. Uh, but now you're maybe 
going to be entering government in, in the autumn, possibly in coalition. It's a sign of maybe political maturity that you have to stop being just a, a single issue movement, even though the issue is enormous, into a, a party government or a party coalition government, which means by almost by definition, compromise. Do you think the Green Party uh, in Germany and the Green Movement more broadly has that level of maturity to be very provocative to, to, uh, to handle that? Mm -hmm. Now, I think that this is a process that we have basically already gone through um, 20, 25 years ago when we were in government in Germany with the Social Democrats. And I think that there um, we also really had to, um, you know, strengthen our broader profile. Um, but looking back even to the history of the party, we have obviously always been mostly seen as an ecological force, but we traditionally also come from human rights movements, from the peace movement, from the feminist movement. So we have always had sort of a, a broader a base on, on topics and issues that a lot of people inside of the Green Party care about. So I think we are, we are up for this challenge. Um, and I think that, I mean, let's see what is actually going to happen then in autumn in Germany. Uh, we can always look at the polls um, and uh, be happy but what matters is in the end what the election will bring but you know at the moment we are already in a number of um, governments on the state level in Germany so we already take a lot of governmental responsibility so to say and I think that the party is really ready um, also to form a coalition um, and then to also in certain cases make compromise but obviously we don't want to govern at any cost so if it looks like we are going to go into a coalition and our coalition partner would not give us the issues that are important for us then we would also be ready uh, not to do it um, but I hope that we will come out of this election with a strong result and then actually go into government in Germany. It seems to be a, a kind of paradox because the, the climate change is, is, is a reality and, and, is, and it's re widely recognised all over, especially inside the European Union. However, and correct me if I'm wrong or push back, certainly, uh, the Green, Green parties, the Green movement aren't as successful or as prominent or as visible in other uh, member states, some quite big, uh, some smaller, why do you think there are so many members of uh, member states inside the European Union which don't have a significant Green Party presence? Well, I mean, if you look at the situation, if you, for example, compare the situation in the UK or in France with the situation um, in Germany, one thing that is very obvious is that depending on the electoral system that you have, it is easier or much more difficult for Green parties as, you know, not being one of the traditional two parties in the system um, to succeed to the same extent. I mean, we have seen now in the UK and also in France really impressive successes of Green parties, but mostly on the local level, on the regional level, right. where there is proportional representation. Right. Then they are really comparable to also what we win in Germany. Um, but then if you look at the UK with the first-past-the-poll system or also in France, which, which has a majoritarian voting system as well, it is much more difficult. And I think that um, in Germany, we are very much aware that our sister parties in other countries have much more difficult preconditions to get into parliaments to the same extent um, than we do. Um, and I hope in that spirit, we try to support each other as much as we can. But it, to be fair, though, it's not just, is it, electoral systems, because in great parts of the southern Europe, southern European Union and the east and central Europe, there are not those kind of issues and still the Green Party are not making that kind of breakthrough that we've seen in your country, for example. Yes, because I think in some um, countries, especially um, in eastern and central Europe, we have never managed to the same degree 
to establish um, parties um, and to, you know, sort of have also a trusting voter base, or we are still in the process of doing this. I think we have some positive examples where, for example, in Poland now, um, we have MPs in the in the national parliament um, in some other also Eastern um, European member states of the European Union. Um, for example, in, in Croatia, there are going to be local elections where it looks uh, quite good uh, to an associate, uh, for an associate party of us. Um, but indeed, I think that um, the, the countries where you had these strong ecological, social, peace, feminist movements that were then kind of, you know, building up the base for um, founding green parties are the ones where also now you already have long-standing, uh, successful, some to a larger, some to maybe a smaller extent, uh, green parties. And there you can see, I mean... The, the Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, the Scandinavian countries where the green parties have already been present in the political landscape for 30, 40 years now. And they obviously have a different starting point than green parties maybe in countries like um, the Czech Republic or Poland. What about the influence of the green group inside the European Parliament? I mean, you, every time there's an election every five years, I see more or less there's a gradual increase in the number of seats won by the Green Party, the Green Group. Uh, and you, I think I'm right in saying that now I have 73 seats out of a total of 705. But it's always struck me in previous legislatures that you're, the Green Group is grouping is very good at sort of punching above its weight because you kind of focus uh, and you choose issues where you know you can have an impact and you don't try as a group spread yourselves too thin because in the old days you didn't have that many members in your group. I mean, what is, the, what, is the, what is your strategy as a Green Group to make sure that you, you wield as much influence as possible inside the European Parliament? Well, I think what really plays in our favour is that, as you know, in the European Parliament, we don't have standing majorities. So we don't have a government and an opposition right. um, that is, you know, the government is proposing something and then the majority pushes it through more or less. Mm. We always have shifting majorities and they're very often... Um, we can be, you know, maybe even with not such a big number of MEPs, but we can make the difference. And, and this is why for the other groups, it's very, it's, it's always been very interesting to have us on board. And that means that they would also have to take proposals, amendments that we have made right. um, uh, into, the, into the compromise proposals. And this is why inside of the European Parliament already for years now, we have had much more influence and then I think what a lot of people think looking at European politics from the outside, what has always been our challenge, however, is that we are not so well represented in the council or we have not mm -hmm. been. Now we are in six governments inside of the European Union, um, but we are not leading any of these governments. So this has always been much more challenging for us, especially, for example, when it comes to the distribution of um, positions or things like this. And for that, obviously, if the German Greens really enter the German government, that would be a complete game changer because then we would really have a much stronger base also in the other co-legislative institution uh, in the council. Um, and that, uh, I think, for us would mean a complete, uh, you know, like an elaboration of, of our power position here in, in the European institutions. Right. Let's move on in the final part of our conversation, Terry, to the conference on the future of Europe. Obviously, uh, it launched a few days ago, great fanfare, or certain fanfare in Strasbourg. Um, but obviously- Just for my birthday, you know, especially oh, for my birthday, they made all this spectacle there. <laughs> they knew that in advance, they chose that especially, right, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> 
well done, Mr. Macron. Um, but also, uh, it's obviously not quite the process it was originally designed to be, right? The, the French president, Mr. Macron, wanted this to be a two-year-long exercise of lots of internal uh, party uh, politics and bickering about personalities and who should run this and lead this exercise. It's been, it's been, it's been pared down, clearly. Um, do you feel though, that as an MEP, you, you have no choice, frankly, but to support it because it's, it's, it's ostensibly a link to getting input from the outside world? Or can you feel you have a freedom, if you want to, to criticise the process as it now exists? Well, I absolutely feel that I can criticise it and we can also... Um, uh, I mean, we have also done it uh, in the past and say what we would like to do better. But for me, it's what is the crucial thing now is to make it worthwhile as much as possible. I mean, just to give you one example, I come from this um, industrial city, Gelsenkirchen, in the rural area. A lot of people maybe feel, even though they're not far away from Brussels, but they feel that there is a very big gap between them. You know, we have a lot of problems with poverty, unemployment. Um, so they feel that maybe Brussels, the European Union, is really far away. Mm. And uh, this conference on the future of Europe can actually be a tool to get closer to them. And this is what I think it should be used for, you know, not name dropping and not important mm. speeches. Mm. Even though if Emmanuel Macron wants to give an important speech, you know, give him that, I don't care. But what I want it to be is really to create these citizens assemblies and to make people think about, look, I'm an EU citizen. What do I actually want from the European Union? And ironically, or maybe also a little bit um, uh, sadly, Brexit has actually helped to get people engaged because a lot of people said after Brexit, oh my God, the European Union, you know, maybe I feel it's far away. Um, but now I see that so many UK citizens have lost uh, their rights as EU citizens. I don't want this to happen to me. So how can I actually get engaged in this? So I think that this is what we should use the conference for. Um, and then you know, for the important speeches, Macron can go to, to Strasbourg. I'm, I'm fine with that. <laughs> okay, I'm sure you'd be very happy to hear that from you. Uh, <laughs> but I said provocatively just now that it could be, certainly critics are saying it could just be a talking shop. And there is a, a, a danger, is there not, that uh, parliamentarians like yourself, not you personally, though, will feel that they have another platform which to spark views about the future of Europe, as opposed to listening to what the outside world thinks. Do you, do you think that's a fair comment as well? Well, I think there is a danger of that. But to be frank, I mean, every time you bring politicians into some sort of exchange that you have this danger, yeah, but then it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it in the first place, because I still hope that a lot of my colleagues, but also people from national parliaments who will be involved, regional parliaments, other politicians will listen to what is debated there. And then, and I mean, that's the whole point of it, we wanted to create enough leverage so that then the proposals that come from there can actually be tangible um, proposals also that can then be, for example, put into uh, into the treaties or put into EU law. And that's the like long term, it's probably not going to be something that will happen next year, but this is the long term aim of this. Because the question is now, I mean, we have for the first time in the in the history of the EU lost a member state, what do we have to do better so that this is not going to happen again? And how can we make the European Union ready for the 21st century? And yes, we are maybe a little bit late because we are already sometime into the 21st century but for Christ's sakes I mean we all know the challenges that are ahead of us and 
I want the European Union to be up for them. And this is what I want to use this conference for. And then maybe in two years, you're going to tell me, yeah, but it didn't deliver. And that can happen. You know, when you do something, you can fail. But I still want to give it a try so that we at least have the option that we can come out with some good proposals from it. Well, you teed up my final question to you, Terry. Actually, we don't know at this stage because it's only just been launched, the process. What new proposals will, will come forward from, from the outside world and which will, which will sort of percolate to the top of the priority list, as it were. But my question is more about the, the process. I mean, isn't there, a, a, again, a danger that citizens will think we've made this huge effort to take part? We were told, we were made to believe that our input was, was valued and would be listened to. Uh, and yet, what happens to these proposals that we, the outside world, bring forward? Isn't there a, a danger that the, the institutions and political leaders in Europe haven't quite thought through how they will take on board these proposals, whatever they are in the future? I think there is this danger, absolutely. I think less so in the European Parliament, though, because I think the European Parliament is a much more like listening institution also because, you know, every five years we have to go uh, to the ballots and then we have to be reelected. Um, I think for the Council, you will have to see what kind of dynamic it can uh, create. And I hope that it will create a dynamic because, as you know, in a lot of questions, the Council right now, it's stuck. So um, I hope that we can increase the political pressure on the council so that they finally realize that in order to actually build a European Union that will last another hundred years, um, you have to change something about the, the fundament also, how it is built up. Um, and I hope that um, with some of the proposals that will come from the conference, um, we can make that happen. Probably not all of them, but at least maybe um, some of the most supported or strongest or you know, most outspoken proposals, um, we can actually push them above the line. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Terry Wanker, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.